Greetings! You're listening to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn but don't always have time to study. I'm your host, Rory Roberts, and I'd like to thank you for joining me today. When I started this passion project, I had grand plans of publishing episodes three times a month, and I'm honestly a smidgen surprised that I managed to keep that practice up as long as I did, given what was going on in my headspace and personal and professional life at the time. For those of you fortunate enough not to know, depression is a beast, and blue stocking was a way for me to focus my energies outward and creating rather than in my own dark space, so I'm very grateful for that. One day, maybe, I'll do an episode about the Werther effect. Maybe. But today is not that day. Today is all about propaganda. And if you'll forgive me the terrible dad joke, I'm not talking about when a British person takes a really good look at something. No, seriously, propaganda, information, storytelling. My curiosity was piqued in late February when historian Heather Cox Richardson closed her daily newsletter with the following lines. The Ukraine resistance has given rise to the ghost of Kiev, a fighter pilot who may or may not be real and who may or may not be a woman and who has shot down six Russian planes. Such a superhuman legend symbolizes Ukraine's people in this terrible week. A. That name is ridiculously cool. B, I was definitely fantasizing about this person being a woman because there are few things I love more than anonymous ladies saving the day in spectacular fashion. And C, I'm pretty sure there hasn't been an ace pilot, someone with five or more downed enemy planes, since World War II. So I did a little more digging, made some fan art, and have been pondering this legend ever since. The story goes that this single pilot shot down six Russian fighter jets in a single day. And more stories continue to surface of Ukrainians fighting incredible odds to defend themselves against this Russian invasion. The soldier at Snake Island who, when ordered to surrender, responded with Russian warship, go F yourself. A young woman known only as Charcoal who has gained fame as an exceptional sniper. There are These are stories that, whether true or not, embolden or frighten their audience, depending on who's hearing it. These stories actually remind me a lot of the messaging American citizens were receiving during World War II especially. Propaganda designed to keep us in the fight on the other side of the world while we were still struggling to recover from the Great Depression. I'd like to share with you from the National Archives Powers of Persuasion online exhibit. Guns, tanks, and bombs were the principal weapons of World War II, but there were other, more subtle forms of warfare as well. Words, posters, and films waged a constant battle for the hearts and minds of the American citizenry just as surely as military weapons engaged the enemy. Persuading the American public became a wartime industry almost as important as the manufacturing of bullets and planes. The government launched an aggressive propaganda campaign with clearly articulated goals and strategies to galvanize public support, and it recruited some of the nation's foremost intellectuals, artists, and filmmakers to wage the war on that front. Masculine strength was a common visual theme in patriotic posters. 
Pictures of powerful men and mighty machines illustrated America's ability to channel its formidable strength into the war effort. American muscle was presented in a proud display of national confidence. In the face of acute wartime labor shortages, women were needed in the defense industries, the civilian service, and even the armed forces. Despite the continuing 20th century trend of women entering the workforce, publicity campaigns were aimed at those women who had never before held jobs. Poster and film images glorified and glamorized the roles of working women and suggested that a woman's femininity need not be sacrificed. Whether fulfilling their duty in the home, factory, office, or military, women were portrayed as attractive, confident, and resolved to do their part to win the war. The basic plan for Woman Power Office of War Information laid it out in black and white. These jobs will have to be glorified as a patriotic war service if American women are to be persuaded to take them and stick to them. Their importance to a nation engaged in total war must be convincingly presented. Of course, of all the images of working women during World War II, the image of women in factories predominates. Rosie the Riveter, the strong, confident woman dressed in overalls and bandana, was introduced as a symbol of patriotic womanhood. The accoutrement of war work, uniforms, tools, and lunch pails were incorporated into the revised image of the feminine ideal. But there are other images too. A young woman clasping a letter, gazing wistfully off into the distance, is captioned with a pretty harsh, longing won't bring him back sooner, get a war job, in all caps of course, and then see your U.S. employment service. A young woman smiles from behind a typewriter or a stenography machine as she salutes the viewer under the words, victory waits on your fingers, keep em flying, Miss USA. During World War II, racial restriction and segregation were facts of life in the U.S. military. Nevertheless, an overwhelming majority of Black Americans participated wholeheartedly in the fight against the Axis powers. They did so, however, with an eye toward ending racial discrimination in American society. I have a lot to say about that. That has to be another episode. This objective was expressed in the call initiated in the black press for the double V, victory over fascism abroad and over racism at home. The government was well aware of the demoralizing effects of racial prejudice on the American population and its impact on the war effort. Consequently, it promoted posters, pamphlets, and films highlighting the participation and achievement of black Americans in military and civilian life. At the beginning of the war, black Americans could join the Navy, but could serve only as messmen. Doris Story Miller joined the Navy and was in service on board the USS West Virginia during the attack on Pearl Harbor. Restricted to the position of messman, he received no gunnery training, but during the attack at great personal risk, he manned the weapon of a fallen gunman and succeeded in hitting Japanese planes. He was awarded the Navy Cross, but only after persistent pressure from the black press. There's a poster featuring a drawing of him from the chest up wearing his Navy Cross with Pearl Harbor burning in the background and the words above and beyond the call of duty. Private Joe Lewis is featured on a poster as well. Lewis reigned as the world heavyweight champion from 1937 to 1949. He is still widely considered one of the greatest heavyweights of all time. 
During his reign, Americans hailed him as a symbol of racial unity and the, and the American dream. In 1942, after enlisting in the army, Lewis remarked at a Navy charity dinner, we're going to do our part and we'll win because we're on God's side. The remark received a standing ovation and enthusiastic media coverage made Lewis a national hero. It also sparked the creation of this poster by the U.S. Office of War Information, or the OWI. Established in 1942 by President Roosevelt, the OWI aimed to merge the state's other information agencies, reduce public confusion about the war, and promote patriotism and sacrifice for the war effort. During the war years, gasoline, rubber, sugar, butter, and meat were rationed. Government publicity reminded people that shortages of these materials occurred because they were going to the troops and that civilians should take part in conservation and salvage campaigns. There's definitely some shaming going on in some of these posters. A man is shown driving alone in a car with a bare outline of Hitler in the passenger seat under the words, when you ride alone, you ride with Hitler. Join a car sharing club today. Public relations specialists advised the U.S. government that the most effective war posters were the ones that appealed to the emotions. The posters played on the public sphere of the enemy. Images depict Americans in imminent danger, their backs against the wall, living in the shadow of Axis domination. A study of commercial posters undertaken by the U.S. government found that images of women and children in danger were effective emotional devices. One shows a woman holding a baby with two shadowy hands representing Germany and Japan hovering menacingly and the words, keep these hands off, buy the new victory bonds. Another poster shows a quaint country church about to be crushed by a giant Nazi boots and the words, we're fighting to prevent this. Many of the fear-inspiring posters depicted Nazi acts of atrocity. Although brutality is always part of war, the atrocities of World War II were so terrible and of such magnitude as to engender a new category of crime, crimes against humanity. The images were composed to foster fear. Implicit in these posters is the idea that what happened there could happen here. The Government Information Manual for the Motion Picture Industry Office of War Information put it plainly. Under their system, the individual is a cog in a military machine, a cipher in an economic despotism. The individual is a slave. These facts are documented in degradation and suffering of the conquered countries, whose fate is shared equally by the willing satellites and the misguided appeasers of the Axis. Artist Thomas Hart Benton believed that it was the artist's role either to fight or to bring the bloody actual realities of this war home to the American people. In a series of eight paintings, Benton portrayed the violence and barbarity of fascism. The Sowers shows the enemy as bulky, brutish monsters tossing human skulls onto the ground. During World War II, the government alerted citizens to the presence of enemy spies and saboteurs lurking just below the surface of American society. Careless talk posters warned people that small snippets of information regarding troop movements or other logistical details would be useful to the enemy. Well-meaning citizens could easily compromise national security and soldier safety with careless talk. 
Words are ammunition. Each word an American utters either helps or hurts the war effort. He must stop rumors. He must challenge the cynic and the appeaser. He must not speak recklessly. He must remember that the enemy is listening. A woman, someone who could resemble the viewer's neighbor, sister, wife, or daughter, was shown on a wanted poster as an unwitting murderess. Wanted for murder. Her careless talk costs lives. At least one viewer voiced objection to the choice of a female model. A letter from a resident of Hawaii to the Office of War Information reads in part, American women who are knitting, rolling bandages, working long hours at war jobs, and then carrying on with women's work at home, in short, taking over the countless drab duties to which no salary and no glory are attached, resent these unwarranted and presumptuous accusations, which have no basis in fact but from the time-worn gags of newspaper funnymen. Go off, sister. The poster that stood out most to me uh, so much so that it's been emblazoned on my mind since first seeing it as a high school student, features a drowning sailor about to be swallowed by the sea, his hand outstretched, pointing or trying to grasp salvation, and the words, someone talked, big and bold and searing into the retina. You close your eyes and the sailor disappears as if beneath the waves, but those words are slower to fade. Loosely, loose lips sink ships. I keep thinking of the meeting that Ukrainian President Zelensky had with Congress a few weeks ago. Two Republican senators, Marco Rubio and Steve Daines, shared screenshots of his Zoom call while it was going on, despite the explicit request of Ukraine's ambassador not to share details of the meeting until it was over out of concern for Zelensky's safety while they were probably just trying to show their support for Ukraine, and, and that's a generous uh, assumption in my opinion, that thoughtlessness could have had dangerous consequences for Ukrainians, including their president. Loose lips sink ships. To guard against complacency, the government in World War II promoted messages that reminded civilian America of the suffering and sacrifices that were being made by its armed forces overseas. Once again, the Government Information Manual for the Motion Picture Industry Office of War Information had something to say. The mortal realities of war must be impressed vividly on every citizen. There is a lighter side to the war picture, particularly among Americans who are irrepressibly cheerful and optimistic. But war means death. It means suffering and sorrow. The men in the service are given no illusions as to the grimness of the business in which they are engaged. We owe it to them to rid ourselves of any false notions we may have about the nature of war. And these posters are brutal. One shows a deceased soldier draped across a stretch of barbed wire. The image suggests the trench warfare and no man's lands of World War I to me, but could also be from World War II, and features the caption, You talk of sacrifice? He knew the meaning of sacrifice. On January 6th, 1941, President Roosevelt addressed Congress, delivering the historic Four Freedoms speech. At a time when Western Europe lay under Nazi domination, Roosevelt presented a vision in which the American ideals of individual liberties were extended throughout the world. 
alerting Congress and the nation to the necessity of war, Roosevelt articulated the ideological aims of the conflict. Eloquently, he appealed to Americans' most profound beliefs about freedom. The speech so inspired illustrator Norman Rockwell that he created a series of paintings on the Four Freedoms theme. In the series, he translated abstract concepts of freedom into four scenes of everyday American life. Although the government initially rejected Rockwell's offer to create paintings of the Four Freedoms theme, the images were publicly circulated when the Saturday Evening Post, one of the nation's most popular magazines, commissioned and reproduced the paintings. After winning public approval, the paintings served as the centerpiece of a massive U.S. war bond drive and were put into service to help explain the war's aims. Here's what Roosevelt had to say that ended up inspiring so many. We look forward to a world founded upon four essential human freedoms. The first is freedom of speech and expression everywhere in the world. The second is freedom of every person to worship God in his own way everywhere in the world. The third is freedom from want everywhere in the world. The fourth is freedom from fear anywhere in the world. I can't help but think how different our world might be today, especially in light of the ongoing pandemic. If we were still in a place where government and media collaborated, some might say conspired, to create propaganda that would influence Americans to work together for the common good. What might that look like? I think of Ukrainian citizens right now, half a world away, fighting for their lives and freedom, looking to these stories, whether true or not, of incredibly heroic deeds, such as the Ghost of Kiev or the Snake Island Soldier. Side note, I do absolutely love the story of President Zelensky being offered help leaving Ukraine for safety. The fight is here. I need ammunition, not a ride. I love that. And I think of the greatest generation and their myriad sacrifices at home and abroad, and then I see images in my head of viral videos of enraged, stereotypical Karens and Kyles berating masked service industry workers about how they're sheep and they can't infringe on their freedom to go out in public barefaced. Could we have beaten this thing sooner with the right kind of propaganda? Should we have?